And now, it's time for Mob Talk Radio with your host, Jeff Canarsi. Welcome to Mob Talk Radio. I am your host, Jeff Canarsi. Now, this is a weird way for me to start the show because we are going to get to the big portion of the show and there'll be a whole nother introduction. Uh, And the reason for this little strange glitch is because I did not expect us to surpass our subscribers before we even started this fucking show. I'm just going to be honest with you. I didn't expect it, but here we are. I said that if we reached 100 subscribers, we would do a big prize giveaway and that's exactly what we're going to do. So here are the rules, ladies and gentlemen. I am going to ask you a two-part question. All right? And you are going to take those answers, and you're going to send them to mobtalkradioshow at gmail.com. But here's the hitch. We are not going to allow submissions until 10 o'clock in the morning on October 26th. So if you send me your answer at midnight, I'm not going to fucking touch it. All you have to do is answer this two-part question. Email your answers at 10 o'clock in the morning on October 26th at mobtalkradioshow at gmail.com. The prize is going to be worth 150 bucks. Who doesn't want a free fucking prize, right? So here's your question. Who gave Al Capone the scar on his face? The second part to that question is, Who was the St. Valentine's Day Massacre supposed to assassinate? Once again, I'm going to read the two-part question for you. Who gave Al Capone the scar on his face? And who was the St. Valentine's Day Massacre supposed to assassinate? I'm looking for very two specific names. So... Get cracking. Send your answers to mobtalkradioshow at gmail.com. The first person to get it right is going to win a package. You're going to get a choice. You're going to pick box A, box B, or box C. So what will happen is the winner will get notified. I will message email them from the show, and I'll say pick box A, B, or C. You're going to pick a box. I'm going to tell you what you won, and I'm going to get your address, and we're going to send that right out to you. So get cracking, folks. Get cracking. Stay tuned for Mob Talk Radio. And welcome to Mob Talk Radio. I am your host, Jeff Canorsi. And if you are new, we have a lot of new people actually on this show that are listening in. Uh, The first and foremost thing is that I wanted to thank everybody who made the jump to the new platform. Uh, Like I said, uh, there were some things that I, I think that I was hoping to attain uh, prior to having to do this, uh, I tried to keep the show free for as long as I could, and I did have a deal in place, but sometimes things don't work out, and maybe they don't work out for the better. Uh, the other platform would have been absolutely massive, uh, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, when you do something for a long time, and I've been at this for like four and a half years now, uh, when you do something for that long, and you do it the hard way, and, and when I say the hard way, meaning... I didn't buy subscribers. I didn't pay for advertisement. I don't do what everybody else does. I earned it the hard way in the old-fashioned way. Uh, and, and that really is what came down to why I didn't jump to a different platform that I had originally thought that I was going to uh, sort of join. But all that being said, I wanted to thank everybody who joined. And for the new people, 
If you don't know who the fuck I am, well, get your uh, get your volume and your seatbelt ready because there's a couple of things that I do differently that nobody else does. Number one, I don't tolerate tolerate rats under any fucking circumstances. I never will. But I'm going to try my best on this new platform to just avoid that situation. I cover the streets from the street angles, street perspectives. I know a lot of people and I get the facts, whereas everybody else sort of embellishes and makes up their own shit as they go along. I will never do that. Uh, Anything that I ever tell you, you can research and check for yourself and know where the sources are coming from. And you can find out that I am telling you the truth. Uh, So all that being said, what do we have in store for this platform? Uh, first of all, there's going to be no more personal attacks unless I got to get involved in something and, and defend a friend of mine. Then I'm going to do it uh, past that. I'm not going to touch it. Uh, we are going to be on this platform for a long time. Uh, so far, it's a huge success. And for those that are listening, I know you're going to ask, did we hit 100 subs yet? Because I said when we hit 100 subs, we're going to start doing prize giveaways and how that's going to work. And as of today, uh, I am recording today. Uh, obviously, it's uh, Wednesday. Uh, I'm recording this a little bit early, so in between now and when I release the show, if we hit 100, I'll I'll let everybody know. But what we're going to do is this. Uh, I will ask a question on this radio show. Then you will email mobtalkradioshow at gmail.com. I will not, and I know what people are going to do. They're going to try to get slick on me like a motherfucker, and they're going to try to like weasel and go, oh, I know the answer, and they're going to send it right then. So here's going to be the rule. The rule is I'm going to ask the question. You have to wait till the next morning at 10 a.m. on the dot and submit your answer. And the first one who gets it right will get a choice. Pick box A, pick box B, pick box C. No matter what, you're going to win something. Uh, But A, B, and C, one box is going to have something minor. One box will have something big. So it's like a shell game. You're going to have to pick the right box. You're going to get something nice. Uh, The minimum prize is valued at 25 and the maximum prize is 100 and up so i like to give back and that's what we're going to try to do on the show we're going to do hoodies we're going to do t-shirts we're going to do all kinds of merch and stuff like that but it takes a little time to get all this set up so all that being said as the merch starts to come along we'll let everybody know what's going on also we're going to have guests authors uh we're going to have people that have I don't want to say been in the life. I, I don't like to use that sort of uh, statement, but but we, we're going to have some people that are probably closer to that than than, than the, the schmucks you see on these other shows who are really never nothing. Uh, so we're going to do that. Guests are lining up. But with COVID, it's kind of a pain in the ass because I don't like to phone it in. I want to sit in front of somebody and ask them questions. So I got to be delicate in how I, I sort of line up these interviews and stuff like that. But that's what we have going on. It's going to be four four to five shows a month. We're going to have interviews, book giveaways. Uh, just recently, uh, I acquired three books that are coming out. Uh, nobody has seen them yet, and I'm in the process of reading those. And that's one of the benefits of doing what I do is I get sort of the early entrance exams or I get the early entrance prizes to things. Uh, and, and all three of these books, one specifically is about Pittsburgh. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Talk, talks a lot about Russell Buffalino and some other things, Pittston. So, uh, you know, all that being said, we have a lot planned. Uh, I'm going to be, for those that don't know who I am, I'm loud, I'm abrasive, and I don't I don't fucking pull back my words. I never will. Uh, but we are going to change how we do a couple of things. Uh, mainly, we're going to do a lot of giveaways and stuff like that. Uh, and we're going to talk about corruption from the federal government level because I think that's very important. One of the things that I wanted to do when we were over on YouTube, uh, and for those asking, the old shows will remain on YouTube. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do was, was cover more in-depth sort of court 
cases and documents that talk about the federal government being being corrupt. And, and what I mean, and a good example of that would be the commission case uh, when they knew that Vinnie, the, the, they knew that, uh, you know, some of these guys were not on the commission at the time. Uh, and, and they still convicted them anyway. Uh, Carmine Persco being uh, probably the best example of that. He defended himself in court and he actually did a great job. He probably could have been a lawyer uh, had he not chosen the life that he chose to to sort of live. So we're going to do a whole bunch of different things on this show. Uh, totally going to be fan interactive. We are going to start something where fans can call in. Uh, and yes, yeah, so that means a live show, right? Yes. Yeah, so we're we're definitely working on the live show aspect of this. We're going to have meet and greets and stuff like that. Uh, I Like I said, I, I've had to hire two people to, to handle a lot of the email stuff and, and a lot of the PR stuff just because I don't have time for it. So if you're used to talking to me all the time, I, I apologize if I'm not going to be as sort of reachable it's just that i'm very busy with a million different things right now but i will always strive to answer your questions to the best of my ability now as for the q a's uh you will have to go to our uh facebook page mob talk radio and you will see q a uh unfortunately people that are not, are not a member of this platform probably are not going to get to participate uh it, listen a lot of people don't want to pay money and i get it but we are the cheapest uh podcast that is out there uh in this genre i waited till everybody else threw their fucking coins in the fucking fountain and boy are they fucking throwing money at people boy are they asking people for a lot of fucking money uh apparently the pandemic didn't cross their fucking minds uh listen i'm not getting rich not at all Uh, i wish that were the case uh i'm just more or less at the end of the day trying to facilitate what i'm paying for fucking internet and fucking uh you know, my equipment and stuff like that. Uh, so that's where it's coming from. And I don't even get the full five. If people, people want me to be, you know, transparent about it, I don't even get the full five. Uh, a portion of that goes to the company taxes and, and everything else. So really, when you break it down, I'm only really making three dollars two seventy five, three dollars uh, from people after taxes and everything else. So I'm not getting rich, but I'm also not going to fucking hold a gun to your head and say, give me the fucking money, you prick, or I'll kill you. I'm not going to do that. Uh, and so that's just where we stand. Uh, if you're new to the show, I welcome you. And for all my friends, cause I, I recognized probably 75 of the, like the 90 some that joined yesterday. Uh, you know, I appreciate it. I really do. And I appreciate the people that still continue to, to donate, uh, even though you don't have to, I'm never going to ask you for nothing. If you, if you've come on the new platform, thank you very, very much. Uh, and if you haven't, then, you know, you're a loss, uh, people that complain about, paying five dollars is a little ridiculous to me but listen everybody's budget's a little bit different but i'm not like the other jerk offs they're going to charge you 15 bucks a fucking month for a bunch of nonsense i'm just not going to do it that's not what i'm about okay so here's what we got today we are going to talk about the roy DeMeo crew this is going to be the most in-depth probably show that i will ever do uh typically uh, just just looking at the numbers, uh, my I think my Roy DeMeo show did eighty thousand. The old show, uh, which was I think two years ago, uh, and I was only very basic. This is more in depth, and I wanted to redo it because I felt like the Roy DeMeo crew specifically uh, deserved a lot more credit. And I say credit loosely, uh, but they 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 really need to be shown in a different light. Uh, this is probably the only bunch of people you're ever going to hear me say did some fucked up shit uh normally my stance is that eh, fuck them they didn't do nothing wrong 
Well, in this case, it's a little hard to ignore that, considering they were convicted of like 10 plus so murders. The FBI alleges they committed between 200 and 350. I don't know if I buy that, but we'll get into all of that. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, but today's show is going to be part one. Uh, and here was the point I was trying to make just a bit earlier. Uh, normally, a, a typical show, if if I have Q&As, you know, I take 100 questions, 150 questions, I answer those, and then I'll do a mini biography, which is usually probably in total, probably 12 to 13 pages of notes. I'll just be honest with you. This show is 65 notes, uh, pages of notes. That is a lot of notes. That's a lot of court transcripts. That's a lot of art, article looking. Uh, I went in depth. Now, I did read Murder Machine by Jerry Capici, and I believe Gene Mustaine helped on that as well. I did read that years ago. The book is great. Uh, they missed a couple of things. Uh, but if you're looking to compare my show with Murder Machine, the book, you're not going to get it. It's going to be a little bit different. So all that being said, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to start on part one of the DeMeo crew. Uh, part two of the DeMeo crew will be released one week after the first episode, and I know people are going to want to be Jones in for the second fucking part, uh, but I have to do everything staggered just because we started so late in the month. Uh, probably the third weekend, we'll do a massive Q&A, and I'm trying to line up a guest for the fourth week. That's that's the fucking goal. So for everybody that joined, welcome. Uh, all you can do to help support the show is just post the links, post them in your groups, post them everywhere. Uh, you know, get people, uh, if somebody wants to join and they can't afford it, you know, let me know and then I'll take care of it. If somebody doesn't got that kind of money and they still want to partake, message me, email me at uh, mobtalkradioshow at gmail.com and I'll see what I can do to help somebody out. This isn't about getting rich. This is about facilitating a show and allowing anybody who wants to partake to partake. Uh, so all that being said, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about an arrest in Italy. And then we're going to get to the Roy DeMeo show. Stay tuned at Mob Talk Radio. On a given week, I'm out of town a lot. Uh, whether it's Philadelphia, it's New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, wherever the case may be, I'm always looking for a place where I can sit down and have a great dinner. Uh, ambiance is key. Price is obviously key. But the most important thing is, is the food Good. And there's a place I want to tell you about today. It's called Saltwater at Margate. Uh, if you are going down to the shore, because I know a lot of people in Philadelphia go to the shore, uh, especially Margate, you're missing out on a great restaurant if you haven't been there. Uh, the name is Saltwater Margate. It's at 9401 Ventnor Avenue, Margate City, New Jersey. Uh, the phone number there is 609-289-8078. You can also visit them online at saltwatermargate.com. This place is unbelievable. Not only is the food absolutely superb, the price is great, too. Uh, they're renowned for their pizza and their gnocchi. Uh, they have all kinds of different things from mussels to roast pork and Italian fare. So do yourself a favor. Do me a favor. Go and visit Saltwater Margate. You will not be disappointed. Uh, it is a place that I think at some point, if not already, there's going to be lines out the door and around the block. So if you're down on the shore, stop in, go to Saltwater Margate. At least check them out online at saltwatermargate.com. I know at times we like to have a lot of fun on this show, but it's time to get serious about one thing. I know that the coronavirus pandemic has hurt a lot of my listeners in their businesses. Restaurants have been ordered to close, gyms have been ordered to close, cigar lounges have been ordered to close, and even bars have been ordered to close. These are small businesses that don't always have the cash reserves to continue making their rent or mortgage payments. They can't even pay their vendors. My good friend Mike Kaysen of Kaysen & Kaysen is an experienced bankruptcy lawyer that is there to help you right now. 
Kaysen & Kaysen represents individuals and small businesses in complex bankruptcy proceedings in New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Miami. Give Mike a call at 646-397-6226. And if you mention Mob Talk Radio, he's going to give you a free consultation. Once again, it's Mike Kaysen of Kaysen & Kaysen, 646-397-6226. Welcome back to Mob Talk Radio. In case some of you are wondering, I do eat at these places that I do talk about. Uh, Mike Kaysen is one of my attorneys, good guy. Uh, if you're having problems, he's a good guy to reach out to. Uh, I was recently at Saltwater at Margate on the Jersey Shore not a week, two weeks ago, a week ago. Uh, food's still fantastic. Uh, great, great place to go and eat. So if you're down on the shore, do yourself a favor uh go to saltwater Margate. good food they just got their liquor license so you can get your drink on if that's what you want to do uh but i was just recently there i love it every time i go that's really the only place i will go to eat when i'm on the shore just just being honest with you all right so all that being said i wanted to get to a little news um there was a massive arrest uh in in italy the other day uh and 19 andrangheta members uh, were arrested really close to the Austrian-Italian border city of Trento, Italy. Uh, and, and pretty much the, the, the arrest was really, it was conducted in Calabria in, in the Reggio region. Uh, the Italian authorities are just totally taking it to Andrangheta's ass. Uh, they've, every couple of months you keep seeing this. Uh, and, and listen, by all accounts, Andrangheta is, is really one of the richest and most powerful mobs in Italy. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're huge cocaine uh, narcotics traffickers over in Europe, uh, you know, and, and realistically, uh, this was a, a governmental st uh, statistic that I saw, but uh, the activities are estimated to be the equivalent to at least 3% of Italy's GDP, which is gross domestic product. Uh, and according to the latest news sort of to come out of that way, uh, Andrangheta's income in 2008 was close to $60 billion. So if that tells you uh, the amount of just sheer money that they're pulling in is, is pretty crazy. They influence most of Italy, Northern Europe, Australia, North and South, South America, uh, as well as Germany and, and some other places uh, like that. Uh, one of the things that the Italian authorities has tried to do in the past uh, was use RICO-like charges, but RICO-like charges do not work in Italy. Uh, that's one of the reasons why Giovanni Falcone came over to talk to Rudy Giuliani back in the 80s, because they were trying to implement a RICO type of statute in Italy. And it just didn't work, obviously, because Falcone got killed on a huge bomb. Uh, because the mob wasn't going to put up with this bullshit and shenanigans. Uh, and it's also rumored at one point that uh, they wanted to kill Rudy Giuliani as well. Uh, that wouldn't shock me either. 
so what we're what we are seeing in Italy is is the Italian authorities are now taking the children and they're now seizing money. When you seize money, you cripple them uh, because if you're cutting off their assets, I mean, what's the reason why you get involved in the life to begin with? You want to make a lot of money, right? So. That is one of the things that the Italian authorities are doing. They're following the money trail. Now, why they don't do that here in New York, I, I, I think a lot of people have asked me that. And I think the truth is, is that it's harder to find the money here than I think it is over in Italy. I mean, you're, you're dealing with, what, $60 billion. I don't think today, uh, listen, I could be wrong, but if you took all five families combined the money they have, I don't think they're pulling in $60 billion a year. I'll just be honest with you. Uh, maybe in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, absolutely. But today, I don't. I don't think so. I just don't see it that way. But, but like I said, uh, I could be wrong. So, uh, I wanted to get to the first part of the Roy DeMeo show. If you are not familiar with the DeMeo crew, by the end of today, you're either going to need a fucking barf bucket, you're going to have to go in witness protection, uh, or you're never going to listen to me again. Uh, these guys were no nonsense. Uh, I knew one of them, and when I say that, I don't mean I was palling around with a guy because he's been in prison forever. I, I knew him through uh, somebody else in prison, got to know each other a little bit. It was obviously Anthony Center. Uh, I, I don't, I've don't. i talked about at length before my sort of interactions with Anthony. Uh, for those that constantly ask me, his last name Center, how is that Italian? Well, it was actually Sente, S-E-N-T-E, uh, when they came over to this country and obviously got anglicized. Uh, you know, and, and Anthony is even even to this day, uh, he is a no nonsense, believes in his core values, believes in uh, the code. That's just Anthony. He's always been like that. And I don't think he'll ever change. Now, I haven't talked to him in a few years. I'll be very honest about that. Uh, so I think he's still in Allenwood. If I'm if I'm not, I could be wrong, but I think that's where he is. Uh, they're never going to get out of prison. Anybody that keeps telling you they're going to get out, they're not. Uh, they, uh, from what I understand, Joey Testa and Anthony stopped going to parole hearings. They're never going to get parole. They had too many bodies, too much damage, too much shit. Uh, and the difference being is that they were convicted of like, I think 10 murders. And we'll talk about that today. Uh, but before we get into the show, I wanted to play you a sound clip of Roy DeMeo talking to Freddie. And you're also going to hear dirty henry borelli talking in the background so stay tuned for one second i'm going to play that and then we'll come in and do the show will you stop with that camera ready freddy this guy's nuts did you meet my friend ben he's one of the dover brothers ben dover hey did i think i had the machine on all the while and welcome back to Mob Talk Radio. We are talking about the Roy DeMeo crew. Uh, as I said, this is going to be part one and part two will be followed a week after four or five days, probably not a week, but probably four or five days uh, after we launch the show. All right. So before we begin, I just have to say that it's virtually impossible to give you the complete biography of every single member from birth to death. Uh, so what we have planned for today is a brief synopsis of each member and how they met one another and how everything sort of begins to take off, uh, including crimes, the eventual fallout of the crew, <clears throat> excuse me, 
uh, and the Gambino crime family as a whole. Uh, a lot of people have talked about the DeMeo crew, but nobody truly mentions the body count, which the FBI alleges that it's somewhere between 220 to 250, depending on who you talk to. Uh, the number is either put below that or it's put above that. It just, like I said, it depends on who you talk to, but but I firmly believe it, it's probably got to be at least 200, at least the, the bare minimum. Uh, while the crew, you know, were earners in, in every single sense, uh, what they truly were adept at was murder. That became sort of their go-to thing. Uh, where Murder, Inc. Uh, Incorporated sort of had their own history, uh, eight men from one crew had numbers similar to Murder, Inc., uh, and, you know, and that's pretty insane when you do the math and you talk about the time period. Uh, this was a time period that, that, that it should have technically been harder to murder somebody and get away with it. But these guys did. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, the, the while the crew was beneficial in terms of making money for the Gambino crime family, they also were reckless to the extent uh, that they caused Paul Castellano a lot of fucking grief, which would eventually lead to his downfall. It didn't. It indirectly led to his murder. It didn't have a lot to do with with what John Gotti uh, did at the end of the day. I believe uh, you know in nineteen what eighty four eighty five it sparks. Uh, but just crunching the numbers, murder rank. Uh, you know they had twenty or so members of their crew. Uh, and like I said, this is going to be another statistic for you. There are other places that are saying they killed between 400 and 1,000. So nobody really knows technically how many they killed. But I think 200 really is a, a fair estimate of where I think that they were. Uh, you know, I, we could argue logistics and, and the amount of people that we don't know about. But I, I think ultimately 200 is going to be the real sticking number for this crew. Um the crew in itself had said close to 40 some members, but really only eight that we're going to focus on today. Um, you know, it's weird because you look at Murder Inc. and Murder Inc. had 20, 30, 40 members, whatever the case it may have been. Uh, but the damage that the DeMeo crew was able to do, and, and this is in a relatively short period of time, within three years, this is what they did. Uh, so some of the things we are going to talk about are a little bit uh, gruesome. I'm not going to lie. It's going to be a bit gruesome. So if you got if you got a hand, go out and get a, I'll wait, I'll pause for 10 seconds here, let you go grab a, a fucking barf bucket. I'll wait. All right, you get your barf bucket. All right, so Roy DeMeo, no matter what anybody says or can say about that guy, uh, at the end of the day, he was a man's man. Not only could he earn, uh, but he wouldn't hesitate to kill under any circumstances. Uh, there have been these wild conspiracy theories that, that Roy DeMeo in the end was an informant, and none of those things are true. Uh, a lot of that is just rumor and gossip, and basic logic would tell you otherwise, considering that Roy DeMeo pretty much ends up driving himself to his own death at the end of all of this. Uh, informants don't do that. Uh, he could have just as easily uh, started talking. He didn't need to fucking drive himself to his own murder. He could have talked, he could, you know, and he'd have gotten away with it all, and that's not what he did. Uh, there was a long-winded story that was published uh that in the back of DeMeo's car, they found a tape recording device. Now, the fact is, and I've said that for a long time, uh, that that was just rumor that was never factually founded. Uh, but I've heard two different versions of the event. Uh, the first is that Anthony Center and Joey Testa, Joey Testa circulated that information around to throw off the Gambino scent for the murder. 
uh, considering that they had they were contracted to ultimately take out the hit on Roy DeMeo. But uh, everybody was scared shitless of Roy DeMeo and his crew. Uh, the second story I heard was that it was at the suggestion of Nino Gaji to put the recorder in the back to throw off the scent of the local police. Uh, this way they could throw off the scent of who did it, why they did it. Uh, you know, just they were trying desperately to get the heat off of them. Either way, we're never going to know what the actual truth of that is uh, because it's unsubstantiated. So before I begin the show, uh, I, I said it a few minutes uh, earlier. Uh, you know, I, I knew Anthony Center a little bit. Uh, I said I didn't want to get into all of that, and I'm really not going to because I've told the story at volume before. But needless to say, like I said earlier, he's not somebody who will give an inch, uh, especially when you look at all the time that he has served. He's already been in prison over 30 years. Uh, this is a guy that isn't going to talk. Uh, this is a guy with with. You know, uh, all due respect, he's in his late fifties. You know, he was in his mid fifties, I think, when we were we were friendly. Uh, you know, and this was a guy that completely fucking denied the existence of the mafia, even in letters. I mean, he knew that I knew, and I knew that he knew, but he still, to you know, would still just say, "Mafia doesn't exist." Don't read books. This, that, and the third. Not that I brought up the mafia, but it was his way of sort of bypassing the subject uh yet every single letter that we ever exchanged uh was marked in prison yellow which means that the people in the prison were reading the letters and highlighting what they thought was coded messages which apparently that's the thing to accuse me of uh is sending messages and that's not what i i did with him that's not what i do with anybody but you know sometimes you're literally talking exactly about what you're saying and and other times i guess the feds and the hacks think you're talking about other shit i i, I don't understand how that works but that's just what they do uh so say what you want about anthony center but he's the real deal as far as that goes um so the way i want to do this is to talk about the main eight members uh we have to understand how they got where they got uh, and then move forward sort of as the crew comes together uh, and let the circus of oddities begin. Uh, the main eight we're going to discuss is Chris Rosenberg, Roy DeMeo, Dominic Montiglio, Anthony Center, Joey Testa, Dirty Henry Borelli, Anthony, Anthony Nino Gaggi, and Joseph Dracula Guglielmo. Uh, now, for those that are looking for a, a born, this is what happened when he was six, this is what happened when he was seven, you'll get that with a couple of these guys, but not all of them, because some of them are relatively uh, unknown as far as that goes. Now, if you're looking for a, a Dominic Montiglio synopsis, you're really not going to get a ton of uh, stuff on Dominic, and it has nothing to do with the fact that he's a rat uh, or he's an informant. It has more to do with just the fact that uh, in, in reality... Dominic was a low-level nothing in that life. Uh, he ended up becoming a junkie, which was one of his big fucking problems. Uh, other Past the, the Vincent Governora hit, he really did not do much other than collect payments for his uncle. And that's sort of the reality of him. So if anybody's looking for a complete... Uh, you know, uh, storyline or bi biography of Dominic Montiglio, you're not going to get that. So we're going to start with Anthony Center. Anthony Center was born in 1955 in Canarsie, Brooklyn, by all accounts. Uh, and from what I've been able to sort of uncover the last couple of weeks is that Anthony had a pretty rough childhood. Uh, a lot of people have told me that, that Anthony's father, Michael, was very abusive, consistently was beating up Anthony's mother in front of him and his sister. 
Uh, and those beatings ended up sort of leading Anthony's parents to splitting up when he was eight years old, only for them to get back together when Anthony was 14. But by the time, uh, you know, Anthony hits 14, he's already in the streets. Uh, you know, he had already quit school. So by 12 years old, Anthony had been indicted three separate times for auto theft cases, along with Joey Testa, who grew up right down the street from him. They were best friends. They were called the Gemini Twins because they were always together at the Gemini Lounge. Uh, the three cases against both of them had been tossed aside or tossed out of court uh, because they were juveniles in those cases. Uh, Anthony's father, Michael, had an adverse opinion of legitimate employment. Uh, and Anthony sort of learns at a young age, it's better to get to get over than to go to work like a nine to five is out the fucking window. It's not going to happen. And when you have and I'm not getting into the psychology of all of this, uh, but when you have a father who sort of lives by the credo that the streets are better than fucking making an honest day's work, what do you expect a kid to do? Uh, you know, and, and it also doesn't help that Anthony was around his notorious uncle, Robert. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Robert Center, we need to talk to him, talk about him for a second because it's a little bit important. Uh, his name may not be, you know, familiar to you, and it may be. I think the, the hardline mob genre people that know uh, their mob history are going to understand what I'm about to talk about. And it, Robert Center was the guy who was responsible for killing Manny Gambino. Manny Gambino was the nephew of Carlo Gambino uh, and also who was involved in the hit was Jimmy McBratney. Now, Jimmy McBratney has notoriously been blamed for this murder when in all actuality, he had nothing to do with the murder, was not even involved, but he's the one that paid for that murder. Uh, and, and we'll get into we'll get into the the the, the McBratney stuff here in a second. Uh, Robert Center owned Canarsie Recycling Company, and that was located off of Foster Avenue in Canarsie, Brooklyn. I think it's like eighty twenty nine or something like that. Uh, it was also known as the Fountain Avenue Dump, where later Roy DeMeo and Anthony Center and the crew would use that to hide bodies and trunks of cars. They would compact the cars and get rid of the cars. So that's where they used they used the Fountain Avenue Dump to sort of remove evidence, so to speak. And it's worth noting. And Anthony did work at the dump for a short period of time, as did Anthony's father, Michael. Uh, but Michael also owned a small debris removal company, which they also used to dispatch bodies. Uh, you know, so that's how that sort of went down. Uh, Michael would ultimately die of a blood clot and Robert sort of becomes Anthony's guardian and sort of father figure. But he really doesn't take that role. Instead, he sort of begins to tutor him in the life of organized crime. All right, so Robert Center, by all accounts, he was a racketeer, he was a drug dealer, uh, and he was the type of guy who would lay bets and not pay them back, uh, which is sort of where Emmanuel or Manny Gambino sort of steps into play. Uh, Robert was in control of some of the unions and by, you know, most accounts, he was a degenerate gambler and a borrower. So he would gamble with other people's money, not pay them back. He would loan and not pay people back. It was just the way he sort of operated and did things. Uh, and what ended up happening in this particular situation was that Robert had been laying bets with Manny Gambino and he was borrowing money from Gambino. Uh, and also at the time that he was borrowing and the reason why Gambino gave it to him was because Robert was picking up. He was a numbers runner for Manny Gambino. Uh, and so with him paying uh, Robert to pick up the numbers and et cetera, et cetera, he didn't have a problem loaning the money figure. He works for me. He's, you know, he's got to be good for it or else. Uh, and so the truth of the matter is he ended up sort of borrowing so much that he ends up getting somewhere north of $70,000 he owed to Manny Gambino. 
Uh, Center really just didn't have any desire to pay him back, and he ended up joining forces with Jimmy McBratney, uh, who was an Irish gangster. Uh, and, and Jimmy McBratney had a very interesting sort of scheme going on, and one of his schemes was, excuse me, they would kidnap gangsters, hold them for ransom, get the money, and let the gans- get gangsters go. Uh, it had worked a couple of times. It was running smoothly. Uh, but ultimately, this 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 would come back to haunt a lot of them. Uh, but the uh, along with Jimmy McBratney and Robert Center, there was Warren Sherman. Uh, there was Edward Maloney, uh, John Kilcullen, uh, and Thomas Genovese, who was a Colombo crime family associate. So they have somebody that is an associate of an of an Italian organized crime family involved in this kidnapping. Uh, sort of crew. Uh, in fact, going back in time, the crew had actually kidnapped Frankie to Wap, uh Mono, uh, and they had collected a ransom for him. Uh, and one of the interesting little facts that I've never heard repeated everywhere, anywhere that I was able to find out was that they literally kidnapped Frankie to Wap right in front of Jimmy Burke and Henry Hill outside the suite in Forest Hills in Queens. Uh, they ended up collecting $150,000 for Frankie to WAP. Uh, and then they would go on to kidnap uh, three more people before this shit hits the fan. So imagine, if you will, for a second, you got uh, Jimmy Burke, who is not somebody you want to fuck with on any level, who is a big guy in Queens. You're going to kidnap an associate of a crime family right in front of him and Henry Hill. Like, you've got to be fucking out of your mind. Uh, to me, it's just that, that, listen, kidnapping somebody anyway takes balls, but to do it in front of Jimmy Burke takes even more balls, uh, cause Jimmy Burke wasn't the kind of guy that was going to fuck around, but they had gotten away with this a couple of times. Uh, so according to Robert center, uh, who eventually would, would be arrested and, and sort of become a rat and all these other things, it's, it's, it's convoluted and I don't want to go through. Uh, his whole entire case, but according to Center and what he told the, the the law enforcement was that the Manny Gambino kidnapping was sort of a ruse uh, that the you know that Manny Gambino was had sat down with Center and McBratney and everybody else and said, "Listen, here's what we do: you guys kidnap me, my uncle Carlo Gambino will pay a ton of money for me, and we'll all split it." And that was according to Center. I don't believe it for a second. I really don't. I think that's an easy way to sort of a plausible way of denying what you've done. Uh, but the plot was very simple. Gambino would be taken. Uh, they would ask for something close to like a million dollars. Gambino, uh, Carlo Gambino would have paid the money. Uh, and then they would split the money with the rest of them. So everybody would get, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, $50,000, whatever the case may be. Uh, and, and Manny Gambino thought that the plan was perfect and everything would go great. Uh, the plan ends up going off without a hitch. Uh, but those in the crew, including Center, sort of began to worry that Manny Gambino might talk. There might be police looking for everybody. It just might create more fucking static than it needed to be. Uh, and, and they were also worried that if they got away with it, and then Gambino goes about his merry life and et cetera, et cetera, that because Carlo has given so much fucking money to get his nephew back, then now Carlo Gambino is going to want the heads of who fucking did it. And so there's a lot of different fucking worries and and sort of things at play here. And so put yourself in that situation for a second. Uh, you're going to take the nephew of the biggest mob boss in the fucking world at the time. You're going to ask for a million dollars and then you're going to expect that Carlo Gambino is not going to have you killed or want to find out who did it. 
then there's the idea that, okay, well, Carlo may put pressure on his nephew of you will tell me who fucking did this. And then guess what he does? He tries to cover his own end by stealing money by saying, oh, it was Jimmy McBratney. It was Robert Center. It was this guy. It was that guy. It was Sherman. It was fucking uh, Kinkillin or whatever the fuck. So there's all these ideas that are playing uh, sort of in their heads about what's going on. Now, here's the thing. Jimmy McBratney was not involved in this. I don't know. I can't tell you for certain whether he knew what was going on or whether this was just a Robert Center, uh, Tommy Genovese kind of idea. I, I can't tell you because I wasn't there and there really isn't any information to, to sort of tell you is otherwise. Uh, but what ends up happening is uh, they end up picking up Gambino. Uh, and basically what ends up happening is they're discussing with Gambino how it's going to go down. They've already sort of notified the Gambino crime family of, of what's happening. Uh, they're waiting for money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but they, like I said, they were still concerned he would tell the police or he would tell Carl what was going on. So they're in the car. Uh, you know, Richard Chiasson and Warren Sherman were there along with Robert Center. And there's an argument in the car. Uh, where to sort of hide out Gambino until they get the money from the Gambino crime family. Uh, the three, the, you know, set, uh, send a center, uh, Sherman and Chiasson and Manny Gambino are arguing, where should we hide him out? Where should we hide him out? And finally, Robert Center just gets tired of it. And he pops fucking Gambino in the car twice. Pop, pop, just kills him for no fucking reason. Uh, they end up collecting the fucking money, uh, and they end up ditching Manny Gambino in a car so he'll be found. Uh, when Carlo Gambino finds out that not only did he pay a ransom, but that his nephew was dead, he put out a contract on Jimmy McBratney's head. And the reason why he did that was because he knew that Jimmy McBratney led these group of guys. So it's one of these situations of even if Jimmy McBratney was not totally involved in this murder of Manny Gambino, the fact that he had a crew that was notorious for doing this kind of shit, he was going to be the one that had to pay. So, Carlo Gambino sits down with Neil Della Croce. He hands him the contract. Della Croce, in turn, says, I got a guy who will do it. He, he gets John Gotti. John Gotti brings in Angelo Ruggiero and Ralph Gallione. Uh The other issue was that, uh, like I said earlier, even though McBratney had nothing to do with the killing, nothing to do with the murder, just the fact that he was the head fucker in that crew made him sort of extinguishable. All right. Uh, the reward for killing McBratney was going to be whoever took part would be made into the Gambino crime family. So in 1973, Angelo Ruggiero, John Gotti and Ralph Gallione would track down Jimmy McBratney to a bar on Staten Island called Snoopy's. I think it was Snoopy's Bar and Lounge. Uh, Gallione approaches McBratney flashing a badge. He orders McBratney up against the wall. McBratney isn't buying it for a second. He pulls out a gun and he wildly shoots into the ceiling. Uh, everybody starts kind of running around in circles and et cetera. An employee of the bar actually runs behind the back wall and she calls 911. Uh, like I said, everybody in the bar is filing out the door and Gallione uh, flashes the badge again. And for anybody that was still remaining in the fucking bar, he told them up against the fucking wall, acting like a cop. Uh, McBratney realizing his life is probably about to end. He ends up charging Ruggiero and Gotti and Gallione and begins shoving, throwing punches uh, that actually landed. Uh, and he was actually, for the, for the most part, beating the piss out of three guys. Uh, and, and ultimately, as they're all throwing punches and wrestling, etc., uh, 
uh, McBratney ends up like getting pushed back a couple of feet. Next thing you know, Galeone pulls out a gun and fires three at point blank range into McBratney, killing him instantly. The reason why these guys were charged with that murder is because the witnesses all saw it and they named everybody in the crew. Uh, Gotti has always gotten accolades for that murder, but it was not Gotti who fired a shot. It wasn't Gotti who did a fucking thing. Uh, but the fact that Gotti sort of organized who would take part in it after he was given given it to him, it appeased Carlo Gambino. And that's why John Gotti gets made when he gets out of prison for that murder is because he did what Carlo Gambino asked. But at the end of the day, Ralph Gallione was that shooter. John Gotti wasn't. And people credit him with that all the time. And that's not really the truth. So getting back to Anthony. Uh, Anthony ends up quitting school at a young age, and he really becomes adept at stealing cars. That was what he was really fucking good at. Ultimately, at the end of the day, he would become good at dissection. Uh, but him and Joey Testa had this great thing where they would steal a bunch of cars. They were best friends. Uh, and any time that Joey Testa had a problem, he would run to Anthony for help. Uh, in one particular case, uh, a friend of Joey's had come to him and told him that a Puerto Rican had robbed him at knife point, uh, and Joey ends up going to Anthony to handle it. It was a neighborhood issue. Uh, Anthony and Jody, uh, excuse me, Joey loaded up in a car, and they went looking for the guy all day, but they never found him. So even from a young age, Anthony had the propensity for violence. Uh, then in 1973, uh, Joey Testa nearly gets killed in a bar fight. Uh, according to what I was able to to find out joey testa was in a bar he got a little drunk he ends up shooting his mouth off he has crosswords with somebody they pull out a knife and they stab him in the fucking chest which ended up puncturing his lung and, and it sort of uh you know not only did it puncture it but it collapsed uh and joey joey testa ultimately almost died from this when anthony center finds out he doesn't hesitate uh, he finds out who the guy is, and he almost killed him, nearly beating him to death with his own fists in a pipe. Uh, so even from a young age, you know, Anthony was very, very, very loyal uh, to Joey Testa. Uh, so while not much is really technically known about Joey Testa's childhood, other than he grew up inside of a mafia family, had nine siblings, uh, he was really always known as Anthony's twin because those two didn't go anywhere without each other and they would rise the mob ranks together. Uh, they stole cars together. They would rob people. They would do anything that they would do to make ends meet. And ultimately, they're brought into the life by Chris Rosenberg. Uh, all right, so. Uh, Harvey Chris Rosenberg was born in 1950 in Canarsie, Brooklyn. Most of these guys grew up in Canarsie, so you're going to hear that repeated a lot. Uh, not much is really known about Chris's childhood until he was about 13 years old, sort of when his foray into criminality begins. Uh, he started selling drugs at 13, specifically marijuana. Uh, his first arrest would come in 1970 for auto theft, and then he would be arrested in 71 for selling hashish, and then in 72 for theft of a snowplow. Uh, all those cases would be dismissed for reasons that I can't seem to find out. I've tried to find out why those were dismissed. Uh, it may have been because he was a minor, but I, I'm just not uh, totally sure, to be honest with you on that. Uh, Chris had a reputation on the streets for being able to steal cars without getting caught, and his word traveled. Another Brooklyn tough guy named Roy DeMeo would hear good things about Rosenberg. Uh, DeMeo at the time had good connections within uh, the junkyard businesses and saw Rosenberg as somebody with abilities uh, because not only could Rosenberg repair cars, 
Uh, but he had he was sort of an expert at fixing, stealing, and replacing the VIN numbers on cars, which is something that Freddie Denome was good at, something that Henry Borelli was good at eventually. And so you could see how this uh, sort of skill set would all come together. Uh, Roy DeMail would uh, would meet Rosenberg, and and he would actually sort of hire him to move a little a little amount of drugs, as well as get into the car theft business. And in 1972, help facilitate Rosenberg uh, with the rest of the money to open up a car business called Carphobia Repairs. Uh, and then he would in turn, Chris would in turn, hire Joey Testa and Anthony Center to sort of take care of the business, clean up the shop, wax the cars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Anthony Center at this time already was proficient at stealing cars, and him and Rosenberg knew each other well. Uh, Rosenberg needed people under him to snatch cars and deliver them to, the, to, to what has now become a chop shop. Uh, Anthony and Joey were brought in along slow. Uh, like I said, as they were first hired to kind of wash Rosenberg's cars, then take care of the shop, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So after six months, Anthony uh, and, and Joey of being around Rosenberg are sort of released on the streets and start stealing, you know, a dozen or so, or so more cars a week. Uh, eventually, they would meet Roy DeMeo. Uh, Dirty Henry Borelli was born in 1948 in Canarsie, Brooklyn. Uh, he lived behind the house. His his uh, backyard bumped up against Joey Testa's backyard. He was a little bit older than these guys, but they all kind of knew each other through the neighborhood. Uh, and Henry was was really known as sort of a little drug pusher and a, and a bit of a smuggler. He would actually wind up serving time trying to smuggle hashish from Morocco into New York. Uh, and he knew Anthony and Joey and ends up getting introduced to Chris Rosenberg through them. And he never liked Chris. They so I think when uh, Chris was killed, I don't think I don't think Henry lost any sleep. They ended up calling him Dirty Henry because he liked to shoot a gun like Dirty Harry. That's sort of where he gets his nickname. Uh, but anything prior to that as his childhood, there's not much known. Now, uh, Dominic Montiglio was born in 1947 in Brooklyn, New York, as Dominic Santa Maria. Uh, his father ends up getting sort of chased out of his life by Anthony Nino Gaggi, who was his uncle. Uh, Dominic has been on record as saying that in every facet of his life until sort of post Vietnam was controlled by his overbearing uncle. Uh, you know, by most accounts, I don't think Dominic had a relatively normal, normal childhood. Uh, I, I think when you grow up in that lifestyle, uh, like I sort of did that, you see things, you notice things that are a little bit more odd than say the, the, the Carmichael's that live three doors down from you. Uh, you know, Dominic grew up playing baseball. He enjoyed music. But Nino was really the guy in his life that controlled everything from the way uh, Dominic acted to the way he saw things to the way he took things in. Uh, such as the time as Dominic came home and informed Nino that a teacher at school asked him to report names on the blackboard while she was out of the room. Anybody who talked put their name up. Uh, and he tells Nino this and, and Nino almost split Dominic's face open. Uh, because Nino saw it as his nephew acting like a fucking cop or a rat, and he wasn't going to tolerate it. Uh, Dominic would obviously grow up playing sports. His first love was music. Specifically, uh, you know, he joined a vocal group uh, when he was 14, and they called themselves the Four Directions. Like, you can literally listen to some of Dominic's music on YouTube. It's actually very good, believe it or not. Uh, the group had a little bit of success. They performed in nightclubs on Long Island. They opened up for local acts. And when Nino sort of hears that Dominic's desires to be a musician, he really tries to put the, the notion to bed immediately. Uh, Nino knew the mob owned and, and controlled the music business. 
Uh, he knew that the majority of musicians at the time were drug addicts, and he just didn't want his nephew doing that. So despite Nino's objections to that, Dominic just does what he wants. The Four Directions uh, would end up, uh, you know, sort of showing up on some variety shows, and they, they sort of got a small cult following, uh, often reciting songs that, that were popular at the time. Uh, eventually, they reach a point where they want to record original work, original songs that they wrote. But the problem was that the record company that they were dealing with really wasn't interested in pushing them. They were just another doo-wop band. Uh, there were tons out there. Uh, not that they couldn't sing, because I have listened to their stuff, and it's actually really, really, really good. Uh, but th there were a dime a dozen in those days. Uh, and that company was, believe it or not, owned by Carlo Gambino. And Dominic kind of knows this, and he knows they need a push. Uh, and, and so what he does is he goes to Nino, and he asks him for help. Can you help push this? Can you talk to Carlo? Push that out. And Nino just says, forget it. I'm not doing a fucking thing for you. And this is a point where, you know, Dominic was in a point in his life where the one thing he really needed from his uncle was just support. Just support. Uh, and Nino wouldn't do it. Uh, and so with his uncle refusing to help in any way, the group would sort of disband. And then on February 14th of 1966, uh, Dominic leaves his job. He was working at the Grumman Aircraft Corporation and he, he just says, fuck this shit. He goes to an army recruitment center and he joins up. Then he has to go home and tell Nino. Uh, and Nino once again chastised Dominic for wanting to die for his wanting to die for his country when Nino felt that the only reason why Dominic should die uh, was for the crime family and not the U.S. government. So in 1968, uh, he ends up getting, he, obviously we know he went, became a Green Beret, went to Vietnam, and a lot of people have chastised, and this is the one thing that, that I'll sort of say, a lot of people have chastised Dominic Monteglio and said he's lying about his military record, and he's not. Uh, what people don't seem to fucking understand when they go to see those records is they can't find them. And the reason why you can't find them is because he's a federal informant. And anytime you're a federal informant, from your social security number to any fucking thing you took part in where there's government paperwork or anything, is gone. You can't get it. Dominic Monteglio, and I don't give a fuck what anybody tells me, he served honor honorably uh, in Vietnam, and he was honorably discharged in 1968. So the, for the people that go and attack him for the things that he says, uh, I can I can take Dominic Montiglio, Montiglio as a character, and I can say, okay, he's a fucking rat, he's a snitch, he's a piece of shit, cactus fucking rat-loving, cheese-beating, whatever the fuck. But what you cannot take away from that guy is his service to the military. Uh, and that's something that I don't fuck around with. My father was in the military. My grandfather was in the military. My granduncle was in the military. So I come from a military family. Uh, and so from that aspect, people don't like the fact that he's a rat piece of shit. I get it. I understand that. But you cannot take away the service to the country. I'm just saying. That's just my stance. So in 68, he ends up getting honorably discharged from the U.S. military. And he ends up heading down to Florida. Uh, before making his way back to New York, where his uncle would get him a couple of jobs here and there, but that ends up not working out. So, so Dominic, in between that time, he'd gotten married and decides to go to San Francisco in 1971. Uh, while San Francisco at the time was, you know, tail tail ending of the hippie bullshit, uh, you know, he's in San Francisco trying to make things work, and he just really can't seemed to to get it going and he ends up trying to get back into the music business a little bit and it just wasn't working out uh and he was sort of keeping tabs on what was going back what was going on back in new york 
And eventually in 1972, he goes to see The Godfather in theaters, and he felt like the character of Michael Corleone was him. Now, that's his words. Uh, I could see how that would resonate with him. A guy coming up from a crime family, joins the military, tries to be different, and ultimately the war of the family calls him back. Uh, And Nino had put it in his head for fucking years that you die for our family, not the government. You get it? So that's sort of... uh, I think where Dominic was, and I think probably feeling nostalgic and feeling that his duty was to his family, he ends up packing up and he goes back to New York to go full force into the streets. Uh, Nino at the time had started a car service and he puts Dominic in charge of that. It would be in 1973 when Nino stopped by the car service and he introduces Dominic to an associate by the name of Roy DeMeo. Uh, Keep in mind, Uh, In in case you're lost or just joining us that, uh, you know, we're doing small biographies up to the point where DeMeo and the crew start to form together. So in the case of Nino Gaggi, he was born in 1925 in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Gaggi was born into the mafia, specifically through his father's first cousin by the name of Frank Scalish. Uh, And we're going to get back to Frank Scalish in a minute because that's sort of important. Uh, Nino's father, Angelo, was a barber by trade. By most accounts, Nino was a horrible fucking student. Uh, and ends up leaving school in the eighth grade, and he begins to learn the barber trade. Uh, on the side of learning the barber trade, he would begin to slowly hustle. He would sell flowers, and then he would deliver them uh, for different forests in Manhattan. And while he's out on these travels, he hears discussion from the Italian guys about loan sharking, the numbers racket, and it sort of intrigues him. Uh, and what Nino ends up doing while he's out on these flower deliveries is he would stop off at certain social clubs where he knew gambling would be going on. And he sort of becomes a student of the game. He realizes early on that there was a huge profit that could be made from loaning money money to degenerate gamblers as gamblers were always looking for more and more money. So Nino slowly Uh, would take a little change from his flower deliveries and he would begin to gamble. Uh, And it wasn't specifically because gambling was what he wanted to do, but he realized that if he had money, he would attract those who needed money. And that's exactly what he began doing. Uh, It's sort of a tutelage into loan sharking. Uh, A few years later, as the clientele was drying up in Manhattan, Angelo, his father, would move the family to a farm that he purchased in New Jersey. Uh, Nino really didn't have... Uh, at this time sort of an idea of what he wanted to do and so what he attempts to do and this is very interesting from a psychological or sociological aspect he tries to join the military in 1942 he ends up getting uh, declined to join the military because he had uh, myopia Uh, nino didn't understand why and it always kind of left him feeling bitter about the military so some would say and some may claim that he took that fucking very personally, which may have had something to do with why decades later he was so against Dominic joining the military because he couldn't get in. Why should Dominic? And I think if you're going to look at this, the psychopathy of all of this, that makes a lot of sense. And that's something I haven't really heard a lot of people talk about. Uh, so in 1943, the farm life, it just, it's just not working out for the, the Gaji family. And Angelo moves the family back to New York, settling in Bath Beach, Brooklyn. Also, where the Three Stooges grew up, Uh, just a side note, uh, and as a matter of fact, in Bath Beach, Brooklyn, there are two homes that uh, Curly uh, and Moe built with their own hands that are still standing. So if you want directions to that, email the show at mobtalkradio at gmail.com, and I'll shoot you some pictures of the house and where you can find it if you're a Three Stooges fan. Uh, So Angelo ends up going back to cutting hair, and Nino's sister and mother end up going to work for a seamstress company. 
Uh, Nino's brother Roy would end up selling peanuts from bar to bar to make ends meet. Uh, Nino sort of sees the writing on the wall, and he sort of relishes the idea that, that moving and shaking was a lot more fun than doing a nine to five, and he has no desire for it. It's about getting rich. So he goes right back into the streets, and he was smart enough to understand, even at that age, that he could do nickel and dime hustles. Uh, but if he was going to make a lot of money, he had to get near the docks because then he could steal swag and move it for a lot of money. He could make more money, not only just legitimately, but he could do what everybody else was doing on the docks and steal shit. Uh, and, and, and the way and, and that was his way of getting closer to organized crime. Uh, so what he does is he goes to his father, Angelo, and he says, Angelo, you know, can you, you know, pop, can you speak to your, uh, you know, our cousin, Frank Scalish, because Frank Scalish owned the docks. And that was the only way you were going to get on them docks is by knowing somebody. So Frank Scalish's rise in the mafia was something to behold, considering he was caught in the middle of the Castamolare War. Uh, he arrived in New York, settling in the Bronx in 1910 with his brothers, Thomas, Philip, Jack, Joseph and Giovanni. Uh, how exactly he got involved uh, from, excuse me, from a young age is unknown. Uh, but he did have a small shop in the Belmont area, which is the little Italy section of the Bronx. Uh, he slowly integrated himself into the life. He would end up doing murders and he would collect money with impunity. He did not fuck around. He ends up getting promoted to captain in the Brooklyn based Diakilla crime family. In 1928, Diakilla would be murdered and the family uh, in power sort of gets absorbed by Salvatore Massaria. In a sense, uh, Masseria didn't want to take over the Bronx family, so they allowed uh, Manfredi Mineo to take over, uh, which was sort of a bridge gap between Masseria and the Bronx faction, which ended up not sitting well with Frank Scalish. Uh, Scalish felt that the family should be his and felt that Joe Masseria was overreaching, and so Scalish goes to Salvatore Maranzano for help, and help he got. Uh, in November of 1930, Mineo and his underboss, Stefano Steve Ferrigno, uh, were murdered by Castamolari Sicilians led by Salvatore Maranzano. With Mineo removed, Scalish becomes the new boss of the family and a strong ally and supporter of Maranzano in the Castamolari War. Uh, but that wouldn't last too long. Uh, the Castamolari War, obviously, we know would end on April 15th of 1931 when Joe Masseria gets killed. Uh, Maranzano would meet with the New York bosses in May of 1931 to work out a peace plan and organize the five families. Uh, Scalish was recognized as the Don of one of the families. However, uh, after the murder of Maranzano on September 10th of 1938, uh, Lucky Luciano would force Scalish to resign as a family boss. I don't know why that specifically was the reason, but it likely was a reward for Vincent Mangano, who agreed to go sort of along with the hit on Masseria and Maranzano, and that's what happened. Uh, Scalish is replaced with by Vincent Mangano. Uh, as a reward for stepping aside, however, Luciano would send Frank Scalish with Bugsy Siegel out to Las Vegas to get the Flamingo started. On September 8th of 1945, Scalish helped Bugsy Siegel open the Flamingo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, and then Scalish would later become involved in the casino business. Uh, eventually, the Monganos would be killed and chased out of the mafia, and when Albert Anastasia takes over, what does he do? He names Frank Scalish his underboss. So, Nino goes to work for Scalish in 1944, 1945 on the docks. Nino worked out uh, really well, actually. Uh, he was a hard worker. He was good at what he did. And Frank would actually promote him to a supervisor on the docks. And that just 
allowed him to not only make money legitimately, but steal swag and, and make a ton of money. And Frank also realized that Nino showed the ability to mitigate arguments on the docks, which was best for business. Uh, eventually, as Nino would begin uh, to remove items on the dock onto truck beds, uh, he would end up being given a no-show job on behalf of Frank Salish. Uh, he d- it did two things for Nino. First, it allowed him to cover his taxes and keep him out of trouble. Uh, number two, if he was going to make a living in the streets, he needed to cover his ass, and that's exactly what Scalish gave him uh, when he gave him the supervisor job and a no-show job at the same time. So, in 1954, Nino ends up uh, getting arrested. Okay, uh, his charge specifically was operating an international auto theft ring. And what's funny about that to me is that he ends up doing the same shit, not fucking 20 years later. You know what I mean? So uh, so as you can see, I guess his vision uh, auto theft was always like in his mind. Uh, it was a part of his skill set. Uh, Nino was operating out of a used car lot in Brooklyn, and the ring was backed monetarily, financially by uh, Frank Scalish, who at the time was the Gambino boss. So for two years, Nino Gaggi and two associated two associates fabricate false vehicle registrations for non-existent Cadillacs. Uh, the gang was stealing cars and they would match the phony vehicle descriptions and replace the original VINs with new fake numbers. So from day one, Nino knew what the fuck he was doing. Uh, they also gave vehicles new license plates that matched the falsified registrations. The ring then sold the stolen vehicles in Florida, Georgia, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, Texas, and Mexico. Uh, and, and so there's something I wanted to talk about. I got to be very careful with this. So let me let me tell you about Providence for a second. So back in the days, and we're not talking the 60s, we're talking like 70s, 80s, probably late 80s. Uh, anytime the family needed a car, they would go to, I, I don't want to say the, name, the guy's name. He was like a third cousin of mine uh, or a third cousin of my mother's, but uh, we'll just call him Lenny's because I, I, I don't want to. If I say his name, everybody's going to know who I'm talking about. We'll just call him Lenny. Lenny owned a chop shop. Lenny Lenny was dealing in stolen cars. Lenny Lenny was getting cars imported from all over the place that were stolen. Uh, that was sort of a a hidden sort of but yet well known thing. And anytime anybody in my family needed a car, they said, "Ah, go up to the hill, go see Lenny. He'll take care of you. Not a problem." Uh, my mother's, I believe, my mother's first car, which was a green MG came from this place so for years i would joke say ma did they take the vin numbers off she didn't know what i was talking about and i explained to her what lenny's was notorious for she goes no this car was brand new she refused to believe it but she knew better too uh and and i don't think lenny is alive anymore i really don't but that was a big thing that was going on in federal hill in, in the in the day it was go see lenny he'll take care of you. you need a car go see lenny uh so there you go uh so Nino's trial gets underway in 1955 and ends almost as it begins because a witness and, and those involved, you know, uh, at least in a minute way, either refused to testify or suddenly had fucking amnesia uh, or what I like to call curb amnesia. Uh, and he ends up getting acquitted uh, in 1957. Things begin to change specifically for Nino. Frank Scalise would be killed. Now, the reason why Frank Scalise was killed uh, was because he was caught selling memberships to be in the mafia, and that was a strict no-no. One might even argue that Anastasia probably made it up to get Scalise out of the way. Uh, then Anastasia then promotes Carlo Gambino to his underboss. So I think, you know, you may be able to make an argument 
that Gambino and Anastasia were scheming together back as far as uh, 1957 or earlier. But also in 1957, we know that Anastasia would be whacked on orders of Gambino and Vito Genovese. And we've talked about the reasons repeatedly uh, on our show for uh, about that specifically. Uh, But to, to really break it down is that Genovese wanted to be boss of his family. Gambino wanted to be boss of his family, and the only way that it could be done is if they worked together and took people out together, and that's the way it sort of went down. Uh, Gambino would then end up taking over, and he names Neil Delacroix his underboss and handed him control of the Manhattan Manhattan faction of the family. In 1960, Nino was asked to do his family a favor. Uh, They had found the shooter in the Scalise hit, and they tell Nino that he's going to be the shooter in the murder. Uh, Nino joined a crew. Uh, and they hit Vincent Scolante, who was the one who had allegedly shot uh, Frank Scalise. Now, according to, to Nino, he shot Scolante in the head, stuffed him in the trunk, and that was that. Uh, the car was then placed in some sort of incinerator, uh, and that was pretty much the the end of that. Uh, for his role in that hit, Nino gets inducted into the Gambino crime family. Now, that sort of goes against what we just said with the idea that somehow Anastasia sort of made up the shit. But really, if you follow the sort of the rabbit trail of it all, it, it kind of makes sense. Even though it is three years later, uh, the, the hit on Squalante looks like it's up and up. And the reason why it looks like it's up and up is because the hit on Scalise wasn't sanctioned and he kills the boss, blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, if you really think about it and you get down to the scheme and fucking aspects of organized crime, this totally makes sense to me. Uh, other than Scalante being the Scalante being the shooter, it, it was sort of the period or exclamation point to the Scalise shit, which I so fucking believe that Anastasia set up. But that's just my opinion. So by the mid-1960s, uh, Nino had become a feared guy and an earner, and he established a huge loan shark in operation. And he used that money to become silent partners in some legitimate and some not legitimate businesses. Uh, and this is right around the time that he ends up meeting Roy DeMeo. DeMeo at the time was an associate, believe it or not, of the Lucchese crime family. And he was operating his own dark uh, car theft operation in the Flatlands and in Canarsie. Uh, he was a noted earner. He was a noted tough guy. And Nino saw something in Roy. And he ends up talking Roy into leaving uh, the Lucchese crime family and sort of become into the Gambino fold. We are going to take a break really quick and we come back. We are going to wrap up part one of the Roy DeMeo crew. Welcome back to Mob Talk Radio. We are talking about the Roy DeMeo crew. All right, so Roy DeMeo, by all accounts, and I could go on for days, uh, but Roy DeMeo was a bit of an entrepreneur, even from a young age. Excuse me. Fucking coffee. 
he begins loan sharking from a very young age. And by the time he was 17, he was making more money than most people in their mid thirties at that point. He was a very smart guy, very capable guy. Uh, he ends up graduating high school in 1959. He went to Madison high school, uh, and pretty much goes right into the streets using money made from loan sharking, and he was putting it into legitimate businesses. Now, one of the things that my grandfather did when he was young is, and I can't give you specific like details of the cost and whatever. One thing that he did was, you know, they would be given money for milk money at school, and instead of spending his money on lunch, he would take half of what was used for lunch, and then when he got out of school, he would go visit a stockbroker. Now, we're talking at age 12 and 13 and 14. He was so smart, he would take those little little bits of money and he would give it to a stockbroker and he started investing when he was 13 and 14 years old and this went on until he was you know elderly gentleman uh and one of the things that he was able to facilitate by doing that and this is no bullshit uh is that there is a large amount of us in the family okay i probably have 30 first cousins uh, 26 to 30 first cousins 40 second cousins i come from a very big family uh and each grandchild from the family got over $150,000 uh, when he passed away. Now, you do the math on that. 26 grandchildren at 100000 150000 apiece, never mind everything else. So that should tell you the kind of money he had. Uh, and so Roy DeMeo was smart in, in terms of that. I'm just trying to sort of bridge uh, being an entrepreneur uh, at a young age. So uh, anyway, so like I said, he 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 graduates in 1959 he, he begins loan sharking and then he takes that money and he puts it to legitimate businesses uh those scenarios bring him sort of in the fold to the lucchese crime family one of the more unique things uh, unique things that roy DeMeo did early on was he he joins the borough of brooklyn credit union uh you know and he also gained a position on the board of directors shortly after joining the Brooklyn Credit Union. And what he does is he utilizes his position to launder money that he had earned through illegal ventures. And he brings in other little criminals he knows to dump their fucking money in, into the bank as well. Uh, he introduced colleagues at the credit union to lucrative side deal businesses, uh, laundering the money of drug dealers that he become acquainted with. So Roy has this machine uh, fucking fully operational. Uh, he ends up building up his loan sharking business with funds that he steals from the credit union reserves. So he's given loans on money that, that technically wasn't even his money. So if you if you if you follow the logic, you're loaning money out to people uh, probably at like six percent or five percent in those days. But he's using money that's not even his. He's taking it from the fucking bank. That's a win win. <laughs> if you want to talk about like being highly intelligent, it's a fucking win win for Roy. Uh, and so he, like I said, he, he built up his, uh, load sharking business with the funds. <coughs> oh, fuck. All right. Sorry about that. Um, so he builds up his loan sharking business with funds that are stolen from the credit union reserves. And then he would use his power at the bank to bankroll drug dealers and then, uh, launder their money on top of it. So if a drug dealer needs a loan to go out, buy a kilo of Coke, let's say it's 14 grand in those days or whatever, he just gives them the money right out of the fucking bank. And then he collects fucking uh, kickback off of everything. Very genius shit, I got to admit. Um, so he would also uh, he would he would use all of his loan shark customers and give them loans. And so we've talked about that. He would also use car clients and customers, and then he 
it would soon include another other businesses such as a dentist office, uh, an abortion clinic, restaurants, flea markets, bars. He fucking helped everybody, but he was getting a kickback from everything. Uh, and he also ends up getting listed as an employee for the Brooklyn named SNC Sportswear Corporation, which was just a front uh, for everything else. But anybody that asked anything about Roy DeMeo in his neighborhood, you know, he always told people he worked in construction, he was in food retailing, and he used car business. Uh so Chris Rosenberg, one of the unique things that he was doing was he was sort of in a Kevin Smith type of way selling drugs at a gas station, a corner store. Uh, and Roy really starts to see what he's doing. He had heard good things. And he sort of begins to talk to him at length about how you increase your business, how you increase your profits. Uh, and then he offers loaning Chris money so that so that Chris could start selling a bigger quantity of drugs because nickel and diamond ain't going to get you nowhere. You've got to sell the, the, the big quantities of stuff to make real serious money. Uh, and then he would say, here, Chris, I'm going to give you this and then you're, you're going to give me a percentage off the loan. And that's sort of how they came together. Uh, so let's talk about the DeMeo crew. Uh, with Nino's backing, Roy was now earning a ton of fucking money. Uh, with with uh, with with Roy's backing financially, Chris Rosenberg has a lot of influx of money, and he's also got the backing of the Gambino family. Uh, and they begin to move massive amount of drugs, which brought in the family a ton of money. And it also protected Chris Rosenberg from local corner drug dealers. Uh, not only was Chris stealing cars, but he would also go after anybody who created a problem for the Gambino crime family. Uh, Chris also at this period of time brings in Anthony Center and Joey Testa to handle the shop and other things. And Anthony and Joey had begun stealing cars pretty much at record rates. Uh, what made Chris valuable to Roy DeMeo was his penchant for violence uh, and undoing, uh, undying loyalty. Uh, with Anthony Center and Joey Testa in the fold, Chris would have two guys who would do whatever he told them to do, and DeMeo ends up liking both Anthony and Joey. They all sort of had the, the, the same fucking mindset. Uh, Henry, Dirty Henry Borelli would be brought in uh, because he was friends with Anthony and Joey. Chris was, like I said earlier, him and Henry never really liked each other, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that Chris was worried that Anthony and Joey might sort of... Uh, grow to like henry and respect him more than him and he just cut that 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 it's that patent fucking jealousy that you see in organized crime that that unless you understand it it's hard to understand it really is unless you're around guys like it it's hard to understand but it just comes down to well why are they taking a fucking shine to him i'm the one that brought them in and that's sort of what their beef was um so uh, you know uh, Henry, Henry was violent as fuck to begin with. Uh, but Henry was also brought in because he could steal cars. He could do VIN numbers and he also was not afraid to kill people. Uh, and he was a, a former drug dealer too. So that's why he's brought into the fold. Now from drugs to cars, the crew ends up getting formed and begin making a ton of money. DeMeo would purchase a bar, which he would rename the Gemini Lounge, and then Roy's cousin, uh, Dracula, Joseph Dracula Guglielmeo, uh, actually moved in and sort of took care of the bar during the day, but he lived in an apartment which was right to the back of the Gemini Lounge, uh, and that would become the meeting spot for the crew. Freddie Denome would end up being brought into the crew as well. Noted for his drag racing career and his expertise in autos in general, he sort of became the centerpiece for a lot of the auto theft and VIN replacement services the crew would perform, and he would end up driving Roy around. 
1973, Roy DeMeo would prove that he was nobody's fool. Uh, Nino had a couple of particular problems in the city. Pornography was a large part of Nino's business. Uh, he had a specific issue with a pornographer that was known in the area named Paul Rothenberg. Uh, and Nino was basically shaking him down every month. Uh, Paul had a pornography lab where he would process stolen porn films into feature length films, and then they would move them out the back door. Uh, the operation was simple, uh, and it was making close to a half a million dollars a year. Now, how Nino met him, I'm not really sure, I'll be honest. But I, I heard something the other day from somebody that apparently it was Rothenberg who went to Nino to borrow money to sort of open and establish the lab. And that would make sense to me. So Nino would end up getting a kickback every month. Uh, ultimately Rothenberg's lab would be raided by the police and Nino would sort of begin to get nervous. Uh, he wasn't sure if Rothenberg would talk to the police or not. Uh, and Nino wasn't about to lose a ton of money either. So instead of taking the risk, he orders Roy DeMeo to kill him. Uh, and Roy doesn't hesitate and Roy does kill him. And that ended the heat for Nino uh, and ended all the liabilities that could have come forward. Uh, also, at the time the crew is getting established, Dominic Montiglio gets assigned to picking up loan sharking payments on behalf of Nino, uh, which would end up putting him in the mix uh, of the DeMeo uh, of Roy DeMeo specifically and the crew. And, and and Dominic never really liked any of these guys. He just, they creeped him out. He just thought that there was a certain, things could go, but so far. Uh, and so in 1974, the crew would begin its murderous adventures. Uh, Roy DeMeo had had an issue with Andre Katz. Katz was a drug dealer and auto theft guy who had minor dealings with the DeMeo crew. Uh, his main thing was he would steal cars and what he couldn't use for parts or for himself, he would sell to the DeMeo crew. The problem was he ends up getting caught. Uh, some of the cars that Katz was ripping off had gotten the police's attention because they were high-end cars. And eventually the police were sort of sniffing around. Uh, Chris Rosenberg was sent by Roy DeMeo to speak to him uh, just to, to reassure him to keep his mouth quiet. You know, they'll help, they'll help him with lawyers, whatever he needed. Uh, and Chris ends up telling him that he was drawing heat and they didn't need the police looking around. And you just need to keep your fucking mouth shut. And Katz kind of had an ego, didn't like the way Chris was talking to him. The two get into a verbal thing. It, it sort of becomes physical. Chris whips out a pistol, starts pistol whipping him, only to have Katz pull a gun and shoot Chris in the fucking face. Uh, he doesn't kill Chris. Chris ends up surviving, but he doesn't forget. Uh, so behind the scenes, while that's going on, uh, Roy starts to get a bad feeling. Uh, he uses his sources with inside law enforcement, and he finds out that Katz was a rat. He was giving a crew up. Specifically, Katz was giving information to a cop who was actually on Roy DeMeo's payroll. Uh, and, and Roy DeMeo immediately realizes he's got to go. He's got to die. He's a, he's a big fucking problem. Uh, so DeMeo goes to Henry Borelli, and he asks him to kill Andre Katz. Uh, he suggests that Borelli use a woman to lure Katz in, as Katz was sort of a junkie and he also liked to fuck hookers and all this kind of stuff, and he couldn't control himself. So on June 13th of 1975, Katz was sitting in his car chatting up a girl on the side street who obviously was a plant. Henry, Joey, and Anthony pulled up behind him, raced out of the car, ripped him out of his car. They tossed him in their car at gunpoint, and they drove to the Pantry Pride supermarket in Queens. Now, if you don't have a barf bucket, you're going to fucking need one in about two minutes. Uh, the supermarket, uh, in the supermarket, Chris and Roy were waiting in the darkness. Uh, Roy had paid the owner of the market to close for the day. When Katz arrives, 
Uh, he has no clue how bad his day is going to get because cats, you know, one had been talking to the police. Uh, and this is a guy that just can't, you know, this is a guy that just can't be removed. He has to disappear. They end up dragging cats into the meat department of the supermarket. As they swung to the left, Chris came out of nowhere with a butcher knife and began stabbing cats in the legs, arms, and face. He would stab cats over 20 times. According to legend, Roy had to sit down from laughing so hard at Rosenberg's determination and was impressed that he didn't spray blood all over the place. So just picture that. Roy DeMeo is there. Chris Rosenberg comes out of nowhere, just starts wielding a fucking butcher knife like fucking Michael Myers, starts hitting him in the arms, the legs, the face. And Roy has to sit down because he's laughing hysterically. Like, that should tell you something about the fucking people we're dealing with. The worst part is he stabbed 20 times, and guess what? He's not fucking dead. So Katz is still laying on the floor. Roy DeMeo gets up goes to the back and starts assembling a tarp in a workshop of tools. He told the crew to take off Katz's clothes. That's what they do. And then Roy walks in and he cuts off Katz's head while he's still fucking alive. Have you barfed yet? He then takes the head and he gives it to Chris, who takes the fucking head and he walks over to the cardboard compact compactor. He tosses the head in. He hits the button. It starts to move in. And then the head fucking explodes, shooting brain matter, piss, blood, whatever the fuck is in a brain. Starts shooting shit all over the place. And they can't compose themselves. They are laughing so hard. Roy then hands everybody a toolkit. Because Roy was a trade by butcher. As a kid hands everybody knives and they begin he begins to teach them where to cut where to pop where to pull they then would bag the body parts and they would clean the supermarket they would take his limbs and torso and they'd put them in dumpsters and they'd call it a night but however simple this might have been for them they made a crucial mistake they didn't kill the woman who lured cats to the side of the road she would end up taking off after she heard what happened, but later she would come back to tell the cops exactly what happened. Two days later, the remains of Andre Katz are found, and the police would suggest that not only had his genitals been removed while he was alive, but his head was removed while he was alive. You name me another crew that has done that. Over the next few months, the crew would continue to auto, auto theft business, loan shark, and would move into drugs, importing big amounts of cocaine and marijuana. It's also at this time that Roy gets involved in porn. Uh, DeMeo didn't hesitate to move the filthiest type of porn you can imagine, which included child porn, bestiality, uh, et cetera, et cetera. When Nino found out, he was a little disgusted and outraged, and he told Roy not to get involved in that kind of shit because it just it it's disgusting and repulsive you have children how could you do that but DeMeo was like fuck you basically he didn't say that to him but he says yeah 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 Nino and then continued to do it because the money was too good so in 1976 Nino Gaggi's home gets burglarized down in Florida Nino was pretty pissed off and he believed that the reason he believed at the time that the recently fixed electrical issues that he was having in his house directly pointed to the electrician who or the electric contractor who came to the house 
Uh, Nino was pissed and orders Roy DeMeo to kill him. Uh, George Byram was the electrical contractor who they believe tipped off the thieves who then broke into the house. Uh, Nino sent DeMeo down to Florida to handle the problem. Uh, DeMeo would kill Byram in a Miami hotel room, and then uh, he would be joined by Nino and another gangster by the name of Tony Plate. Uh, and there was an interesting situation that happens in this hotel room. So uh, DeMeo fucking kills the guy I, I don't i think he put two in the guy's head the guy's laying there they got the tarp on the floor nino shows up with tony plate and nino wants to dismember uh so roy hands nino a butcher knife around uh, along with tony plate and as nino's on his knees trying to hack into this guy's torso uh roy DeMeo can't stop laughing because nino's gagging because nino can't handle it and so with nino going ah, you know, Royce hysterically rolling on the floor laughing. He can't stop laughing. Uh, but lucky for them, you know, there was there was a little bit of commotion outside the room. They kind of peeked out the window and there was a construction crew outside the room that was repairing a faulty air conditioning unit, uh, which caused them to say, fuck this shit. Let's get out of here. Uh, and a day later, the corpse of George Byram was found by the motel maid. All right, so also in 1976, Carlo Gambino would die, making Paul Castellano the new boss. Uh, Paul would make Neil Delacroach, obviously his new underboss, and he would promote Nino to capo of his former crew. So now Nino is a, a captain, and he's taking over Paul Castellano's old crew, brings the DeMeos into that fold as well. Uh, the, the, the DeMeo crew would continue to move drugs and pick up the pace with the auto theft ring. Uh, 1977 was a big year for Roy DeMeo. Not only was he a high earner, but he was a dependent on killer. Uh, he ran with the most feared crew in New York City with his crew's associates kicking up and his men kicking up, uh, followed by him in turn kicking up to Nino and Nino kicking up to Paul. Uh, DeMeo was becoming a very recognizable and very determined force within the mafia. On the back end, Nino wanted to get Roy officially made and on the record, and he wanted to become a full-fledged member, but Paul Castellano was sort of unsure about it. He had heard rumors of DeMeo's debauchery and his methods, and it bothered him, and so he sort of puts the idea on ice a little bit. Uh, Danny Grillo, uh, who had become a new DeMeo fringe player, would introduce... Uh, Roy DeMeo to the Westies. Uh, the Westies at the time were very similar to the DeMeo crew, uh, but they weren't organized as well. And but they were they work very very completely wild. Uh, the Gambinos had issues with the Westies as they killed Ruby Stein, uh, and there were tensions brewing within the Westies organization itself. Uh, there were several issues. Number one, Mickey Spillane, who was the de facto leader of the Westies, was creating a ton of issues for the mafia, specifically the Genovese crime family at the time. Uh, as the concrete and building boom was widespread in New York City, the Genovese crime family wanted to control the new Javits Convention Center because there was a lot of money involved and they wanted it. And the contract was just absolutely immense. Uh, and the Genovese had only, always considered that to be their turf and their right. Uh, the, however, the center was going to be located in Hell's Kitchen, which was technically Mickey Spillane's turf. Uh, the Genovese crime family attempted to reason with Mickey Spillane and split the profits up, but Spillane refused, saying it was his territory. With no agreement, the Genovese said, fuck this shit, and they end up getting in touch with Joseph Mad Dog Sullivan, who was a fucking legend and a maniac, uh, and... They send uh, Mad Dog Sullivan to kill Tom Devaney, Eddie Comiskey, and Tom the Greek uh, Kapados, uh, who were three of Spillane's top lieutenants. So in the background of all of this, Jimmy Coonan wanted to kill Mickey Spillane as well. He not only wanted to take over the Westies, but he had some personal beefs. 
uh, and Mickey and, and Jimmy Kuna needed a friend, and that friend would end up being Roy DeMeo. Uh, but why was there a beef between Mickey, uh, excuse me, Jimmy Kuna and Mickey Spillane? Uh, and that, that why was there a problem? And that shit sort of goes back a couple of decades. Uh, when Kuna was 18, uh, Mickey Spillane had pistol whipped Jimmy's dad and kidnapped him. And infuriated Jimmy Coonan, he swore no matter how long it took, he would kill Mickey uh, Spillane. So in 1966, Coonan ends up trying to kill him and he fires a machine gun off a rooftop uh, at Mickey Spillane. He ends up not killing anybody, but Spillane sort of realizes that Jimmy Coonan's not fucking around. Uh, Spillane then went to Coonan's father, slapped the shit out of him and told him, get your son under fucking control. Uh, then Jimmy Coonan ends up going for prison for a short period of time for murder and kidnapping. Uh, they end up getting uh, pled down to a classy ma- classy manslaughter charge, and he gets released in 1971 and swears to God he's still going to kill Spillane. Uh, the Genovese crime family would then take the order Spillane and pretty much killed every single one of his men in a very, very relatively short period of time. Spillane then ends up fleeing to Queens, believing that he was safe from harm. So with Spillane sitting in fucking Queens, Jimmy Coonan starts to make to make moves in Hell's Kitchen. But because Spillane still technically was in control of that turf, turf, uh, you know, and he still sort of had the contracts on the Javits Center, uh, the, the the Genovese crime family is fucking furious. So Tony Salerno steps in and he goes to Jimmy Coonan and he, he offers him a deal. If Coonan was allowed to be the boss of the Westies, meaning the, the Genovese crime family would back him up, would he allow Tony Salerno to oversee the Javits Center project and sort of its funding and its profits? And in turn, Jimmy Coonan would get a big kickback. Would he be willing to go along with it? And Coonan says, fuck yeah, Absolutely. So then Salerno reaches out to the Gambino crime family. Coonan uh, would then explain the situation to Roy DeMeo as the two had sort of become friends on what this back deal might be. So in 1977, Roy does not hesitate and he kills Mickey Spillane. Uh, but there was still the issue of Ruby Stein. And this is sort of how the Westies sort of comes into the fold with the Gambinos and then how Roy DeMeo gets involved. So Ruby Stein was a huge loan shark. And it's been alleged that he had over a million dollars on the streets. And that's going back to the 1960s and 70s. Stein had hired Coonan as a bodyguard for a brief time. And the Westies had gotten sort of deep with Stein financially as they borrowed without any intention of paying back. Eventually, Jimmy Coonan takes over. He has Stein whacked. It's, it's been said the reason for the murder who was committed by Mickey Featherstone was because Stein was looking for his money back. Uh, and the Westies wanted his black book and all his customers so that they could collect the money for themselves. The issue was resolved when the Genovese crime family were able to attain his customers and collect and they let it go. Uh, but they also had to, to sort of make inroads with Paul Castellano. So as things are going crazy in Manhattan, Paul Castellano didn't like the press, didn't like the police attention. And the Westies were getting a little bit too wild for him. Uh, he was also pissed that Jimmy Coonan had killed Ruby Stein, and they wanted to kill Coonan and Featherstone for the hit on Stein, but he started thinking in terms of maybe that's not a good a good move. Uh, Castellano had heard through channels that DeMeo was friendly with Coonan, so what happens is Castellano meets with Roy DeMeo, and DeMeo suggests to Paul that they take, look, let's take 10% of their profits, we'll use them for murders and et cetera, we'll, we'll get a kickback, and they'll have a little protection from us as long as they don't use our name. Uh, and it was a way that Paul could sort of take control of Hell's Kitchen, uh, and he goes along with it. And then he ends up sitting down with Jimmy Conan, and he offers him a deal. 
Uh, you know, they needed to calm it the fuck down. Uh, if they did, they could operate under the Gambino name, under the umbrella, as long as they got permission for any murder that they committed. And in turn, uh, they would kill for the Gambino crime family. They would earn and everything would be good. Uh, it was a good deal for Paul as it added another crew of butchers and it could bring in even more money. The problem was, uh, you know, Jimmy Coonan loved the deal. That wasn't the issue. The issue was is that his crew, who were Irish, didn't like the Italians, and they looked at uh, this as a deal of not them working on their own independently as contractors, but they were working for the fucking Italians, and that's not what they wanted to do. And ultimately, for Jimmy Coonan down the line, it would become a problem because his own crew felt that he wanted to be Italian and not Irish, and that really rubbed them the wrong way. Uh, but to circumvent the problems... Roy DeMeo would be put in charge of overseeing the Westies on the behalf of the Gambino crime family. And because he was able to put that deal together is why he gets indicted. Excuse me, not indicted, uh, but why he gets inducted into the uh, Gambino crime family. Uh, so in June of 1978, Nino Gaggi and nine other mobsters get charged in racketeering conspiracy and fraud charges as a result of a year-long federal investigation into the bankruptcy of a theater in New York. The majority of evidence in that case came from wiretap conversations. Fortunately for Nino, he never said anything stupid or incriminating on them tapes. Then in November, of, excuse me, December of 1978, Nino was cleared of all charges and went right back to business. As a result of the indictment, he began to use Dominic Monteglio more and more and more to collect money for him so he can be like sort of not seen or seen, but still heard. Uh, however, Monteglio was beginning to feel used. He didn't like the fact that he was only making $250 a week, uh, and that paycheck wasn't good enough for him, and he began to use and sell drugs behind Nino's back. By 1977, the crew was in full swing and were operating out of the Gemini Lounge. Also, the Gemini method was in full swing. Uh, the method is, is, I'm going to be honest with you, pretty fucking brutal. Uh, they would either stab or shoot a victim, wrap a blanket or plastic around the victim's head. Then they would place the victim on a tarp and do what is typically called an autopsy incision, you know, from the shoulders to the sternum. Uh, they would then drag the body to the shower, hang it upside down until the body bled completely out. Then they would transfer the body back to the tarp and begin to dissect. Then they would distribute the parts to the Fountain Avenue dump. Uh, many visitors to the Gemini Lounge. Uh, who went downstairs to drop off collections would see often a body hanging in the bathroom. And they did it for two reasons. One, they didn't give a fuck. And two, it was for effect. Uh, Joseph Dracula Guglielmeo, who actually lived in the downstairs apartment and was the general caretaker to the Gemini Lounge, uh, got the nickname Dracula for several reasons. Uh, he got it. The first reason why he got it is because he would bathe in the same fucking shower, stall, and tub that bodies had been drained of blood uh, in. Uh, he had a, he also had a penchant for walking in while the crew was dissecting a body and asking where the pizza was. He would be pointed in the direction of where the pizza was. He'd pull a slice and he would start eating while he watched these guys dismember bodies. Uh, then, you know, uh, that's why he was called Dracula. That's I, I can't imagine grabbing a slice of fucking cheese going. Yeah, that looks good. Cut the head there. I <laughs> uh, Listen, this is some this is some fucking sick shit. Uh, then July would come and the crew would take their butchery to some next level shit. Uh, the crew had an associate by the name of John Quinn. Uh, Quinn was moving drugs and some other things, but he had begun to draw a watchful eye at the police. He had become a problem for the crew 
and guess what? It's time for him to fucking go. They would summon Quinn to the Gemini Lounge on the premise of a drug transaction. Uh, and a- another issue for the crew was the fact that Quinn always came around with his girlfriend. Uh, he would he would just always show up with his girlfriend, and they didn't want eyes or witnesses to anything. Uh, and they worried that she might talk uh, if Quinn just disappeared, especially if Quinn brought her with him. Uh, they knew, like I said, Quinn would offer a, Quinn would often bring her around. Uh, so they figured, no matter what, you know, Quinn's going to show up with her in tow. Uh, and she could sit at the bar while they discuss business on the side. At least that was the premise. So Quinn arrives with his girlfriend by the name of Sherry Golden. Uh, Anthony and Joey met him outside, told him to leave Sherry outside while he went in and talked. Uh, Quinn would, if Quinn had, Quinn should have known right then he was being set up, but he didn't. Uh, Anthony and Joey Testa stand, uh, basically stayed outside while Quinn went inside. Uh, as Quinn entered and headed downstairs, DeMeo turned the corner and shot Quinn in the head three times with a silenced weapon. They did that so that she wouldn't hear the gunshot from outside. Meanwhile, outside, Anthony and Joey stood talking to Sherry. At one point, Joey asks her if he could see her makeup mirror. She bends down to grab it, uh, and Anthony puts two on her fucking head. Problem solved. They would end up dumping the bodies publicly. And the reason why dis- by why DeMeo did not use dismemberment was because he wanted people to believe that, A, they were rats. That's number one. And number two, it was a public message to anybody who ever thought that they were going to say a word about the DeMeo crew. But they got a problem. When Castellano finds out about this murder, he wanted Roy DeMeo killed immediately. Not only had DeMeo killed a civilian, but he killed a girl. And that was just something that the mafia did not believe in. Uh, he also feared that there would be way too much fucking heat. He demanded the death of DeMeo, and Nino continuously stood up for Roy, claiming that Roy was a good soldier, he was a loyal man. Uh, and ultimately, you know, Castellano doesn't want to hear it. It just came down, honest to God, that Castellano enjoyed the money more than anything. And that's the only reason right there why Roy DeMeo was left alive. Otherwise, he would have been killed. But after this instance, Castellano says, I don't want to be around DeMeo. I don't want to talk to DeMeo. I don't want to hear about DeMeo. Uh, But Roy also had dirt on Paul Castellano, which is probably another reason why he wasn't willing to, like, push too hard. To me, it would have been a reason for Paul Castellano to kill him immediately uh, because Castellano's daughter, Connie, who was getting beat up and, and tossed around by her then-husband, Frank Amato. He wanted something done. He goes to Roy through Nino and says, I want fucking Amato to disappear, and DeMeo took care of it. Connie's husband disappeared. Nobody ever found a body. And it was, uh, from what I understand, they killed Amato, they dismembered him, and they put their and his parts went over to the Fountain Avenue dump. So that's the reason why Paul Castellano doesn't push back. But that's a reason why he should have. He should have said, you know what? This guy clipped my daughter's fucking piece of shit husband. Maybe I ought to kill him and just, you know, to, to, to ensure that I don't have any problems moving fucking forward. But he doesn't. Uh, all right. So while Mo- while Roy is making a ton of money from drugs, porn, loan sharking and more, he added contracted hits to his resume for five thousand dollars. They'd kill anybody. Uh, they put the info out there and just waited for a response. Now, really quickly, because Richard Kuklinski gets brought up all the fucking time with the DeMeo crew. One, he never worked for Roy DeMeo, never worked with Roy DeMeo. He was not a mafia hitman. The only time that DeMeo and Kuklinski had any interactions is when Roy found out that Kuklinski was operating a porn lab and he wanted in. DeMeo goes in. 
tells him I'm taking over. He pistol whips Kuklinski and he takes his lab from him. And that's the only interaction that they ever fucking had. And anything stated by Kuklinski past that instance is bullshit. It's all lies. Uh, Kuklinski was a serial killer, guys and girls. He was not a mobster. He was a fucking serial killer. Never was, never will be a connected hitman. That's all bullshit. Uh, it's often been said that other mobsters completely avoided Roy DeMeo, including John Gotti and Sammy DeBull. Uh, while Gotti was tough in his own right, he was absolutely no Roy DeMeo. Uh, but because of DeMeo's background, his reputation, Gotti would end up moving technically up the ranks faster than, than Roy DeMeo. And that was probably because of Gotti's relationship with Neil Delacroix. Let's just be honest. Uh, however, with the split, in the, there, there, there sort of was a split in the, within the Gambino crime family at this time, uh, with obviously Gotti not liking Castellano, and DeMeo was loyal to, to, to Paul Castellano, despite the fact they really didn't get along. He was still loyal to Castellano, uh, while Gotti was sort of with Neil Delacroce and against Castellano. Uh, as 1975 came to an end, Roy DeMeo and the IRS, uh, excuse me, uh, DeMeo uh, had a problem. The IRS was looking into uh, his interests in the Brooklyn Credit Union. Uh, the, the bank really was absolvent. They didn't have anything left. And DeMeo and his cohorts had taken most of it. Uh, DeMeo ends up getting a tip off and he ends up quitting the bank. Uh, and he, fearing that the IRS had information on him, he ends up making false affidavits showing that the money was used for employee payroll and not for nefarious means. Uh, it cleared the money that, that he had taken and absorbed, and it also cleared the money for most of his friends. Uh, and most importantly, it allowed the IRS to reach a deal with, with those involved uh, without filing any sort of criminal charges against them. All right, so... Uh, in 19, what are we at? 1975, uh, DeMeo's still making a ton of money for the Gambino crime family. And then in July of 1976, he began shaking down team, uh, uh, he began shaking down team auto wholesalers. Uh, he not only shook them down, uh, but he would end up going into business with Matty Rega, who owned a portion of those businesses. Uh, Matty would buy stolen cars from DeMeo, and then he would flip them on his lot in New Jersey. He would also get into hijacking trucks with Danny Grillo at JFK. Uh, in 1976, as we said earlier, Gambino dies, making Paul the boss, and Nino would get promoted to captain, which would change a lot for DeMeo and how much he could get involved with uh, without having eyes on him, considering Nino was the one who was technically overseeing uh, his activities. Uh, a lot of guys thought that Paul Castellano would probably open the books, but he didn't. He preferred instead on promoting existing members and shuffling around the crew's leadership, which meant technically if DeMeo wanted in, he would have to find other ways. But like we mentioned earlier, it was DeMeo's work with the Westies that ultimately would get him his button uh, and ultimately probably killing Paul Castellano's daughter's husband. Amato probably is uh what would get him his button all right so with all that being said we are going to stop for today uh we will be back next week for part two of the DeMeo crew in the meantime any questions any complaints you can reach out to us at mob talk radio show at gmail.com thank you for listening in and we will be back next week with part two of the DeMeo crew <laughs> We'll be right back.